0: Don't wait for the next war, a strategy for American growth and global leadership. It's the latest book from retired general Wesley Clark. Terrorism, cybersecurity, financial system stability, uh, the ascent of China, climate change. So let's just walk through those. Terrorism, well, we're, we're in the midst of terrorism and dealing with terrorism right now. We, we are now embarked on another effort with ISIS.
1: What's, what's a strategy, a long-term strategy, that confronts terrorism? Well, you have to provide governance for ungoverned spaces, and you have to challenge Islam to deal with its own internal reform and its contradictions. And uh, that's a long, long process. In the meantime, of course, you have to take whatever actions are necessary to protect the United States and our friends and allies. Easily said, it's been prov- it's proven difficult over the last 15
0: years, just since 9-11 and even before that, into the 90s. What... Um, Like, what are a few concrete steps that you haven't seen taken that you you can see would get
1: us on that path? Well, we made the mistake after 9-11 of thinking you can solve these problems by military force. You can't. You have to solve them by governance. Not democracy, but by governance. And so it's not about saying, hey, you people need to vote. It's rather working with whatever leaders are in the region and helping them to... Um, to maintain control and to meet their people's legitimate aspirations in a way that stabilizes the society and over time will give people a greater stake. When I talked to Prime Minister Hariri of Lebanon in 2004 and talked about democracy, he laughed. He said, you can't do democracy in this region. He says you have to start with the economy. You have to let people participate in the economy. John Stewart did a
0: bit. And he was in part joking, but he was saying, ISIS, you guys want to be a state, you want to take over the banks, you want to run the dams, Uh, good luck. Have a good time when your people are clamoring for access to MTV. But in that satire was the notion that even groups like ISIS at some point are either forced to govern or can't control the population. Is there room for even figuring out a way to meet
1: An ISIS partway? Well, we've had authoritarian leadership in the region. Saddam Hussein was firmly in charge of running the dams and providing electric power in Iraq. We got rid of him. Uh, uh, Hosni Mubarak was in Egypt, and he had it under control. Now, everyone said, he's too old, and eventually you're going to have a democracy there. We kind of nudged him out. We got rid of Gaddafi. And um, we said that Bashar Assad isn't legitimate. Well, Assad was uh, hes like a secular ruler in the region, and that was one of the ways that people in that region were trying to cope with the, with the, uh, with the invasion of Western values into Islam- the Islamic world is they went to socialism. And um, he, uh, we don't like him, so we're getting rid of him. The question is then, what's the moderate opposition? There is a moderate Syrian opposition, but if we hamstring them by requiring them to uh, show all of our Western values and American values before they can get started, they may never get started. And that's our problem. We have to find uh, substitute governance for these regions. Otherwise, you could wipe out ISIS tomorrow, and a year from now, There'd be another 10,000 angry young men who don't have jobs, don't have wives, don't see a future, and believe that the only way they can survive is to go back and emulate what they are told were the virtues of Muhammad and his band in the 7th century.
0: But what is that substitute governance?
1: I mean, we see a substitute governance in the chaos
0: and the, the attempts at people's uh, forming small bands, you know. ISIS as well. I mean, what, what others, I mean, who are, and you, actually, you said something else, we didn't like it. Well, that's part of the problem, us saying we don't like something,
1: isn't it? Absolutely part of the problem. We, we started the, in 19, in the 1980s, uh, President Reagan started something called the National Endowment for Democracy, and uh, he used it, he viewed it as a sort of offensive weapon against communism. In other words, if they were going to try to secretly make some Americans be communists and be spies for Marxism, Leninism, and the Soviet Union, why he was going to go out and overtly recruit people behind the Iron Curtain to believe in democracy. Um, It worked. I mean, we helped overthrow these governments in Eastern Europe. It was partly the Pope, partly the economy, partly loss of faith in the Soviet system, but partly the fact we were teaching lawyers to be human rights activists, and we were holding up the hypocrisy of these East European communist governments until people simply lost confidence in them and they fell. But when you transfer that National Endowment for Democracy to other areas and you continue to espouse the same value, some people might think you're just trying to overthrow governments. And so what's being done by the National Endowment for Democracy, although it seems perfectly legitimate and reasonable to us, why wouldn't you want people to vote? Sometimes they don't like it. And what I discovered in my political career is that sometimes even in America, there are people who don't want other people to vote. So there's a natural impulse to maintain control. And insofar as we're undercutting that, then it's an obligation on us to have a solution. And voting itself is not enough of a solution. In Gaza, for example, uh, Hamas was voted in. Now, Hamas is a terrorist organization. The only thing that's going to happen next in Gaza is another war with Israel. Um, it's unfortunate, but that's what that organization believes in. So what's the U.S.'s response? Again, this is about us not waiting for the next war. So what's the U.S.'s response? I think what the United States has to do is, number one, we have to tend to rebuilding our economic power at home, and then we have to uh, work long-term challenges and then be prepared to respond to crises. The basic strategy for the United States is to stay close to Europe, because if we're tied closely to Europe, we can manage, we've got enough population in the world with Europe and enough resources to manage and work to maintain the structure of peace and peaceful resolution of disputes that we set in place after World War II. That's the United Nations and the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. We can't do that alone. We've got to have our help from European allies. But, you know, China's going to become a great power. Now, with Europe, we're about as big as China, North America plus, plus Europe. But alone? No, China will, uh, they'll they will have their way in the world, and that won't necessarily reflect our values. It may not be democratic, and it may not be respectful of human rights. And it may make us believe that, that might makes right again we don't want to go there
0: all right so then let's take the other crisis the ascent of china is china an enemy
1: not an enemy uh, and we don't want to make it an enemy but it's a state with a different form of government xi jinping articulates a chinese dream nobody knows quite what that is but it seems to be a materially much more prosperous china much more secure and a China that is rightfully the largest, greatest power in the world, the Middle Kingdom. And uh, that's his dream. And people in China, even though they're not Democrats, they're not voting, they they basically believe, yeah, I mean, China's grown 10% a year for three decades. It's growing a little slower now, 7% a year. But that's more than double what we're growing. So they will overtake us in GDP, and they may become, according to people in China, the greatest power in the world. That's their dream. But when they revert to their traditional values, then we want to try to help them see the world through the lens that we built, the United Nations, the International Monetary Fund, the way we settle disputes by law rather than by bullying, rather than having an ambassador walk into a government and say, we don't like your ships there, don't go there again or we will attack. That's might makes right. What we'd like to say is, um, you claim this, uh, this country claims that. Please take your claims into the international court system, and let's look at the precedent, and let's see if we can't work out a peaceful solution. Well, how do you think China has has uh, moved towards that?
0: Have, are they are they more likely to seek diplomatic efforts, uh, or are they? I mean, you could point to the U.S. and Europe and being nations that said we don't like where your warships are, move out. So, are the Chinese?
1: moving in that direction well actually they might but but the legacy of international law in china is that international law was used as an excuse to carve up china in the 19th century so you're not going to find a lot of adherence to the western concept of international law in china their state system their culture everything about china was based on the emperor and power not on inflexible, inviolate rules. So it makes for an entirely different culture. And yet, um, it's the culture we're living in now, and it, it basically will work if we are strong enough and wise enough to support it.
0: Do you mean an example of that in the world today, where you see us working with China in a
1: way that shares, shares common interests, common goals? Well, China would like to exploit the uh, oil wealth of the South China Sea. And so uh, they published their famous nine-dashed line that draws out the boundaries. But those boundaries go right up against the Philippines and, and, and Indonesia and Malaysia, and, and countries are very uncomfortable with that. Vietnam, this is like, you know, they're supposed to have under the Western concept of the law of the sea, 200 miles offshore as their uh, economic zone, and China's taking that away. Now, what we're encouraging is that China bring those claims into the court system. They haven't quite done so yet, but perhaps they can be persuaded to do that. Well, what persuades them? What's the education or the What's the stick? What's the carrot? Well, the stick would be that the United States is a strong and growing power that's not going to go away, and it's not going to be driven from the region, and China has to accommodate the United States view of the world and the future of the world. The carrot would be, um, you'll get a lot warmer relations, and we can all prosper together. You don't have to force your way into this. You can create joint ventures. You can do joint exploration. You can share the profits, and everybody could work together. Cybersecurity. You talk about cybersecurity.
0: You talk about uh, bank uh, international reform of the banking system, the financial system. But let me let me ask you a broader question. Do you hear any of these ideas, and you talk about climate change, which I'm going to get to a second. Do you hear any of these ideas articulated now in uh, in either the Obama administration or in the conversations we hear
1: from, you know, nascent candidates for the presidency? Well, not much, but the truth is that these ideas are in the news every single day. If, if you look at these five problems, there's not a, a week that goes by that two or three of them don't make headlines. The Department of Defense says climate change this week is a big national security threat. The uh, Dow loses 400 points in a single day, and people question whether uh, we've addressed the problems of the financial stability yet. Um, uh, J.P. Morgan is hacked by the Russians. That, that's three of the problems right there. China's going to even line. You didn't even line. mention Ebola, which is all about the fears of infrastructure. And I didn't mention ISIS, which is all about terrorism. It's in the news every single day. Now, here's the test. Can we convince the American public and the political leaders to talk about a long-term strategy? Because if you don't, if you just lurch from crisis to crisis you'll end up with these terrible situations like the military saying, well we couldn't possibly do this because it would cost us a billion dollars a week and we don't have a billion dollars a week well if we could get this economy growing again we would end a lot of the divisive politics we'd repay much of our national debt we'd stop Increasing uh, the debt each year by running these budget deficits, we know we can bring this economy back into balance, and we can do it without raising taxes more than they have been raised, and without cutting benefits. What's the evidence that in 1948,
0: 52, Adlison, Truman, all those guys had a sense, cent- or uh, well,
1: that, that they had a sense that the containment policy was a long-term strategy? It started um, with uh, the author of containment. George Kennan. And he was a diplomat in the embassy in Moscow, and he wrote the letter in 1946 that said, you got to think long term. said, uh, you can contain this uh, expansion of communism, and the best thing you can do to contain it is uh, show our own systems better and compete head-to-head in the non-military means. And they will eventually uh, lose their direction and momentum. And he was right. Eisenhower, when he took over as president and and made his inaugural speech, tried to pull the country together. He said that Democrats and Republicans differ, but uh, what we see abroad is truly evil. We know that we're good and they're evil and we have to stay together and work to defeat this evil. Even though Democrats and Republicans may have some different disagreements, we have to submerge those in working for the common good and the protection of this country. That was a formulation that every subsequent president used as long as there was a Soviet Union. Now, Democrats and Republicans never totally agreed. You know, Republicans always liked to be stronger, have more weapons, let's talk tough. And Democrats always were like, let's get an agreement here, let's see if we can't compromise on some of these issues. But there was a central core of agreement on the need to deter the Soviet use of chemical weapons and nuclear weapons and to uh, block the expansion of communism. It was, after all, the Carter administration, which started helping the Mujahideen in Afghanistan.. So, all right. Did they, was that where they, were they following containment then, or yeah. were they starting to lose track? No, they were following containment? I mean, that was containment. I remember being with General Haig in um, 1978, '79, and the Russians were all over East Africa. There was a Russian mission in Ethiopia, then it became a Russian mission in Somalia, then the Russians lift, airlifted 100 a, a tanks by big heavy-lift helicopters over the mountain ranges into the Ogaden desert, and uh, they turned against the Ethiopians using the Somalis as a base, and, um, and, um, and there was a Russian and Cuban effort in, in Yemen. Uh, South Yemen was controlled by the communists, and there was a Cuban legion in Africa, and General Haig, I remember, said to me on the plane, he said, I can't believe this. You know, we've always thought that the Soviets were status quo. They they would hold on to what they had, but they weren't expansionist. They wouldn't actually use force. They would threaten it, but they wouldn't use military means to take it. And he said, and now they're 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 trying to overrun Africa with military power. Yeah, I mean, we we saw that. Well, uh, well, then put Vietnam in that perspective. You fought in Vietnam.
0: Where did where does it come into the notion of long-term strategy and the idea
1: of containment because a lot of folks say we foundered there how do you look at it well we um, containment really started um, before the korean war with the marshall plan when america realized in nineteen forty seven that these nations in eastern europe or western europe needed economic recovery or they were going to succumb to the lure of communism and a, a quick fix solution just nationalize everything and and, and take over. So um, we made the Marshall Plan. We made it voluntary. Of course, the nations that were run by the Communists, they refused to participate, so they didn't get any of it. But it really did rebuild uh, Western Europe. And, uh, and that was Kennan's vision. He was for using non-military means. But then uh, we looked at the defense perimeter of uh, the world, and we said, this is, this is our line. Uh, the Communists had already taken China at that point. And there was a divided Germany. So we knew what the line was. There had been struggles in Greece. The partisans in Greece had tried to overrun the democratic government that was put in at the end of World War II. And uh, we were providing assistance to that under the so-called Truman Doctrine. And so we were trying to help the forces of freedom and democracy fight against communist aggression. Greece, by the way, was not a member of NATO at that point. There was no NATO. And, um, and then, what we failed to do was we failed to include South Korea in the defense perimeter. In June of 1950, the North Koreans attacked. And um, much to their surprise, we immediately responded. We deployed forces within 48 hours into South Korea. And then we followed with a huge buildup. And that's where Eisenhower came in because we stabilized South Korea. We held our own along the 38th parallel. But we never, we never. Threw back communism and destroyed North Korea in the process. They remained uh, a communist state. We contained it. In Vietnam, it looked like it was going to go the same way. And the French asked us to intervene and destroy the Indo Chinese communists. We refused, and uh, France um, cut a deal. So Northern Vietnam became communist. Southern Vietnam was where the Catholics and Buddhists were, and it was presumed to be independent. But of course, Immediately, the communists took their guerrilla movement to undercut it. We tried to contain that by the Vietnam War, and that's what the war was all about. In the end, of course, it failed, but we got another from 1954 until 1975. We contained that long enough for Indonesia to uh, eliminate its communist threat, um, and we basically stabilized much of Southeast Asia by this was it a good investment no did we do it the right way probably not could we have done better sure but the point was that we had a strategy that if they're gonna try to expand by force we're going to assist those who will uh, will work to stop that expansion under the Nixon doctrine the Manila doctrine of 1971 we said said we'll help those who help themselves so we want to give assistance to those governments who have the wherewithal and the will to fight. We'll make them stronger. But they have to carry the first burden. We can't go create governments. All right, so
0: then compare that to what a good response is going to be over the next 10
1: years in the Middle East. There's a group of, of, of Syrians. They call themselves a the moderate opposition. Uh, they've been in Washington. They've got representatives. They, they don't... Uh, control all of those elements that are fighting the Assad regime but they are broadly sympathetic to American values they don't prom- they don't promise to apply for statehood but they uh, they're not communists they're not socialists and they're not terrorists they might be able to govern at least part of Syria in this interim period if we support them but we're not supporting them what would support well, look like? to connect the military assistance and run it through the political uh, piece. And then what they've said is they'd like to move in on the ground, but to do that, you've got to stop Saddam Hussein's heli- I'm sorry, Bashar Assad's helicopters from flying up and dropping barrels full of explosives and killing people. We haven't been willing to stop that. They've asked us for some air cover, like a no-fly zone over part of Syria. And we've said no. So, in looking at this strategy, you have to look at our NATO
0: allies, and one of them is Turkey. We thought Turkey was going to be part of this effort, and yet Turkey turned around and uh, decided that this was a good time to bomb the Kurds that have been inflicting uh, uh, damage on the the Turkish state. How does that, then, how do we wrap that notion, engaging Turkey, uh, with this idea of a
1: new strategy? The world's a pretty complicated place, especially (laughs) in the Middle East. But I think when you look at this, if you were Turkey, you'd say, "Okay, before I can do anything in Syria, I got to guard my backside. The Iranians are allies of Syria. Um, And so if we do anything against Bashar Assad, we're liable to get retaliated against on the east side of Turkey by the Iranians giving assistance to these Kurds who are uh, crossing the border back and forth. And of course, the PKK will take assistance from anybody if they can fight Turkey. So I think the strikes there may have been a way of uh, clearing the decks and preparing to go against Bashar Assad. And yet it angered all the Kurds in Iraq who we want to be fighting against uh, ISIS. It's a complicated place, the Middle East, and there are multiple agendas. That's That's the challenge for America. You can't see it in black and white, and honestly, we can't really solve these problems. All we can do is intervene on the margin to try to prevent the emergence of situations in which the threat to the United States will become too great to tolerate. Is that that ISIS? That's That's the claim of ISIS. Yeah, that's ISIS. I mean, if ISIS were to take uh, all of Syria and uh, and most of Iraq and actually control the oil revenues and, and become a state and issue passports and so forth, what would we do with ISIS? I mean, they've said they want to attack the United States, and they would start sending people abroad, and they'd have passports and diplomatic cover. We've said ever since 9-11 that we cannot tolerate the emergence of a terrorist state that's a haven for terrorists, and here would be one that's even closer to Europe. Well, that's a a policy. That's a forward-looking policy, right, no terrorist states? Isn't that why we say the global war on terror is a long-term strategy? They called it the GWAT. Yeah, the GWAT. But um, the real long-term strategy is you have to provide governance for these spaces. You can't just assume that you can kill enough people to stop it. That doesn't work. Don't wait for the next war, General,
0: retired Wesley K. Clark. A strategy for American growth and global leadership. Climate change. Your idea about confronting climate change, which you say is real, is we have to have a better energy strategy. But a good chunk of your energy strategy is looking at increasing local capacity for develop- American capacity for developing oil,
1: ethanol, and then some other efforts, including natural gas. I think there's enough uh, on federal lands, offshore and onshore. If you combine that with the technology of fracking, you'll get another million and a half, two million barrels a day. We're short about 7 million barrels a day. You've got to use natural gas as a, as a transportation fuel. That's a minimum of a million barrels a day equivalent. You need to follow through on the renewable fuel standard. That's going to give us another 2 million barrels a day. There's plenty of ways that you can use ethanol in the transportation system. And then you need to take coal and natural gas and convert it to liquid fuel. We have the technology. We have the finances to do it. Permitting has been a bit of a problem, and Wall Street's a little gun-shy of investing in projects after the 2008 experience with private equity. Uh, But with encouragement from the government, all that can be done. There's $7 trillion on the sidelines in the United States that could be applied to these kinds of energy projects. And within five to seven years, if the United States said, we need to be energy independent and we need to be dominating these hydrocarbon export markets, we could do it. Well, that's the
0: notion in your book. That's yeah. the way you're jumpstarting the economy. But uh, what do you say to the uh, the UN and the, and the Department of Energy you looked at ethanol and said, it's displacing food for people, it's way too expensive, and really when you include all the externalities of water and getting it produced, it just doesn't wash. We shouldn't be putting our money in there.
1: Well, actually, if you go back and, and look at the latest studies, um, they don't show that. They show the opposite. So uh, we'll have dueling studies. So you, that's the problem in this space. If you have money, you buy studies and the studies say what you want them to say. Yeah, but that was, this was the government saying that in this case. No, this is not the government. Argonne National Labs doesn't say that. Argonne National Labs will tell you that, that ethanol is between 30 and 50 percent less carbon intensive than gasoline whole life cycle carbon analysis. Ethanol is about a dollar cheaper than gasoline. So when you add it to gasoline, the price for fuel goes down. Uh, eth- engines run just fine on ethanol if they're engineered to do it. In fact, the Brazilians are running the same engines we're running in our automobiles today on 25% ethanol and doing just fine. And um, the automobile industry would accept it if the Big oil companies would accept it. They won't accept it because they'd like to sell to the domestic market. My proposal is that all of the liquid fuel producers, ethanol, biodiesel, diesel, uh, gasoline, everybody work together. And what is not needed in the domestic market is sold overseas. We're already selling three, three and a half million barrels a day of product, refined product overseas. And we're selling an average of, oh twenty, forty, fifty thousand 20, 40, 50,000 barrels a day of ethanol overseas. We'll just sell more of it over there. I, I have we to, can, can do it. Can I argue with you on
0: one point? You can. This is DOE. The United States will use over 130 billion gallons of gasoline this year, 50 billions of diesel. On average, one bushel of corn can be used to produce just under three gallons of ethanol. If all present production of corn in the U.S. were converted into ethanol, it would displace only 25% of that 130 billion. So that's leaving out the, the unintended consequences. Are you arguing that we're close enough for cellulosic
1: or other ways of getting ethanol that we can avoid these, these numbers? Well, first of all, we've got record corn harvest this year because the price of corn when it was $8, um, farmers planted a lot of corn, and two years later, now it's $3. So the food versus fuel argument doesn't wash because we're producing more corn now even though we're putting 20 percent of the crop roughly into ethanol. Yeah, but
0: that's all the other unintended did, consequences. Hedgerow to hedgerow, too much before water. Before
1: we even produced ethanol. So we've more than made up for the amount of corn. The water that goes into agriculture, well, most of it's not irrigated, it's just rainwater. And uh, uh, corn is like 90, 95 percent dry farmed. So it's not that you're irrigating it in most cases. In fact, the new varieties of corn have moved the dry farming line about a hundred miles further west in places like South Dakota over the last 25 years. So what we've done is we've increased greatly the productivity of agricultural land. The first cellulosic ethanol plants are in place. I was in Emmitsburg, Iowa in September. We opened a 25 gallon a year Million gallon a year cellulosic ethanol plant. The technology is um, is uh, is there. The plant will prove itself, and that technology will be licensed out. And it uses corn stover, so it makes ordinary ethanol production even less carbon intensive. You see, the reason I wrote this book is, I mean, these are. I found out these facts about energy, not just ethanol, but oil and gas and everything, because I work in the industry. Yeah. You can't just stay in a university and read other people's studies. So when you serve on boards of directors and you're an advisor to these companies, you get to ask all the tough questions.
0: Yeah, but all these people are, there are as many people saying to you, it is water, that's why the aquifers are being drained, in part because of the way we're farming it, and in part because there is irrigation involved, and they're also saying to you, it's just, it's just too expensive. A crop when you need to feed people, the same when the demands are on corn for food as well as for or feed as well as for energy, and and I mean
1: are all those people wrong? Yeah, yeah. Most of those people <laughs> are wrong. Now the reason they're wrong is because they look at a lot of the studies use 1980s, 1990s data, and the ethanol industries, like most other industries, it's rapidly modernizing. So uh, when I go back and look at those studies. Uh, I look at them and I look at them carefully. For example, uh, the automobile, the the, the petroleum industry put out a study saying that ethanol would damage your cars. But if you looked at the study carefully, they only did 18 cars and there was no examination of the cars before they tested them. So you didn't know whether there was anything wrong with the car to start with. That's not scientific. I,
0: I'm not even arguing with that because, yes, that was that was a bogus study. How about the argument also is you could have a l- much better impact just by increasing CAFE standards, just by
1: raising and raising and raising the fuel economy of these cars rather than spending the money. And we're doing that. And uh, in all of the figures in my book, I've assumed that we've done that. We're going to average 54 miles per gallon per fleet as a fleet average. Uh, but normally, you don't actually achieve it. What happens is that... We've made cars better and better. They last longer and longer, and, and they're, <laughs> as they're so that you keep more inefficient cars on the road. And so we've got 250 million automobiles in this country and light trucks that use gasoline, for example. We'd like to get those over to electric, but you can't do it anytime soon. But what you can do is you can blend more ethanol into the gasoline. You can take the gasoline that we don't need and the oil that we don't need, and you can sell it abroad and you can avoid losing $300 billion a year in the American economy. See, it, it's not a neutral question. We're spending $300 billion a year to import foreign oil. Now, that's a tax on the American economy. I know $300 billion a year, it doesn't sound like that much. I mean, it's only about, you know, it's just a little under 2% of the gross domestic product of the United States. But that 2%, if you kept it in the United States, you might end up with a growth rate of 5% a year. Instead of creating 220,000 jobs a month on a good month, you might be creating 350,000 jobs a month. And instead of being a a nation which is uh, looked at as failing in its economy because it can't create real jobs, you have a nation which is creating jobs. Now, Saudi Arabia won't like that because they like it when we're dependent on them for energy. But Americans would like it. You, uh, you have a few points in this book where you say climate change is
0: real and we need to grow our economy through this energy and we have to make sure we adhere to our environmental rules and we have to make sure that we uh, try to make a transition to this economy by making sure we don't add to the pollution or add to climate change. Given the history, why should I believe that
1: these industries and these governments will be able to do that? You know, it, this is a really tough question in the book. The question is, can can America really come together and make a compromise and deal with both increased energy production, including increased hydrocarbon production, and strengthen the environmental controls? The challenge we face is, can we actually compromise? Can, can environmentalists and oil lobbyists work together to achieve something that's good for the country? Or does each believe that his own individual interest – is much more important than the common good for america that's the challenge for political leadership but that's why you have to have a strategy and you have to have the american people understanding the strategy common good though my common
0: good is that i want the environment to be clean and i want my car that's a common good But i'm gonna make a trade-off there somebody something somebody's ox is going to get gored or more likely some stream is going to be polluted or too much more GHGs
1: goes into the atmosphere. Well, would how, how about if we proposed that we could do a better job of um, preventing the uh, entrance of, of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere? We could uh, have tighter regulation of the oil industry. We could put a flag in the ground that said we will move definitely off hydrocarbons on a predictable schedule in the future as the technology becomes available and people roll over their obsolescent automobiles, uh, would that be something that would be of interest? Or would would you just be um, a person who says, no, um, it's no, 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 no hydrocarbons. There are people who say that, and if that's the answer, then let's just stay home, because modern economy won't work without it. The question is, can we cross the values divide in American society and talk in terms of advancing common interests. Or does everything become a value about which there's only one solution, it's uh, it's stand firm or die. If it's only about values, then the system of American democracy that we have in place is, is destined to be ineffective or worse, because it's very difficult to compromise core values for people, whether that's, if your core value is uh, the environment at any price, then you're a no growth advocate and you don't care about national security. If your, comp- if your core value is free enterprise at any price, no regulations, don't care about the environment, let them pay for it if they like it, then uh, okay, you're not going to get along with the people who believe you've got to have a balance. But. Most American people are in the middle on this. Most people are not um, are not uh, uncompromising. What they want in their political leaders is people who will compromise. Unfortunately, the political system has taken us so far to the extremes of value voting in an effort to raise money and hype enthusiasm for the for for the political process that the um, elected representatives, once they're in office, find themselves in many cases unable to compromise and that's one of our problems the last time this really happened in america was prior to the civil war when slavery was finally it became a no compromise issue and uh, and so there was one way to solve it and that was to fight and uh, if america is dominated by leaders who believe that they'd rather fight than compromise on every issue that comes along, that everything's a fundamental value, that standing firm and not compromising is a matter of moral character rather than uh, trying to advance the common interest of all of their constituents, then we're going to enter a system in which we're gonna find our system of governance not very effective. This happens to democracies from time to time and it usually results in their failure you should mention, by the
0: way, or I will mention, that in the Don't Wait for the Next War you advocate for a carbon tax. How has that idea gone over with uh, the people you work with in the industry, in the in the oil and natural gas industry?
1: Surprisingly, a lot of people in the industry accept the, the, the concept of a carbon tax. They don't like the uncertainty. They want uh, the ability to plan and manage their future. If you tell them this is the carbon tax and I'm advocating here $25 a ton, that's 21 cents a gallon in gasoline. price of gasoline has gone down by more than that in the last four weeks. So it's not that it would dry up the demand for liquid fuel. It's not that it would uh, wreck family finances. Uh, it's not going to injure budget deficit. It's simply the fact that it shows that the political system of the United States can take uh, measures to deal with an urgent and long-term issue in a responsible way. And. Um, there are some people in the industry probably who don't like it, but a surprising number of people accept it and say, let's get on with it. You know, but let us move forward. Let's improve the permitting on federal lands. Let's open some more lands for inspection. Uh, and let's improve the way we inspect our wells. We're, we're trying to do the best we can, but we're tied up in red tape too. So if you could pull all that together, that's, that's why democracy can work. Is because you can find common interests among divergent parties.
0: When you say that, I think to myself about uh, the Exxon Valdez and the Gulf oil spill. Uh, are those, in the way you said, the Middle East is a complicated place? Are these the most extreme costs of
1: doing business and following these kinds of policies? Well, they are extreme costs, uh, but, one, but what the ones like we have to, to accept? What I'd like to say that is that you know, with the right. Um, regulation and leadership, you won't have those costs. You know, what we did in the financial services community after the Depression, in 1933, we established in this country the Securities and Exchange Commission. And if you're um, an investment banker like I am, you have to be regulated and licensed, and somebody inspects your business. They come in just like we used to in the Army. Say, I want to see your customer files. I want to see your records of operating procedures. They look at you, and they work you works pretty well if you're a small firm like we have. Now, if it's Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan, it's probably so complicated that people can't follow it. But for us, it's pretty straightforward. We could have industry representatives who do the same thing for every well that's fracked in Oklahoma or South Dakota, or North Dakota. They could go in there and they could check the well, they could check the water before it, and, and, and they know. They're experts. You, that's the right way to do it, is to have the industry pay for its own self-regulation to acceptable standards and then report to the Environmental Protection Agency as opposed to having states send inspectors out there who really aren't experts, who are subject to regulatory capture anyway. Um, Let the industry be responsible for it and then tighten up the standards. It can be done. You're more worried about regulatory capture than an industry regulating itself? Absolutely, because I think if the industry becomes responsible for itself, and it knows that its reputation depends on this, that you'll have uh, far fewer incidents like we've had in the past. A lot of people write books like this, not this book,
0: but, you know, these 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 pieces where we try to understand uh, what the next step is have been written for hundreds of years, right? Well, many of them end up on shelves and are unread or read once and then say, oh, great idea, and then business as usual. What? What's the uh, power of a book like this, do you think,
1: to have some impact? Well, I think the power is uh, a function of what people see as the need for a strategy. Um, In the 1970s, you could write about nuclear deterrence, and people said, oh, yeah, show me the intricacies of nuclear deterrence, but we had the strategy. Here, if you go down the street, there is no strategy. And what this lets people do is you read the book and you say, gee, you know, it's a funny thing. uh, Non-governmental organizations like Red Cross, they have a strategy. And uh, banks, they have a strategy. And states like Arkansas or Texas or the state of Washington, they have a strategy. Cities like Seattle have a strategy. How come America doesn't have a strategy? People say, oh, it does, it does. Well, please tell me, what is that strategy? What is it? And if we can get that dialogue going, I'm sure there's lots of better strategies than the ones I propose in this book, but we won't find them unless we're looking for them. Don't wait for the next war, a
0: strategy for American growth and global leadership from retired General Wesley K. Clark. Thank you, sir. Thank you. This is In Residence, Conversations at Town Hall. I'm Steve Scher.